The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. I'm delighted Colm Tobin is with us. Fantastic collection of essays. A Guest at the Feast is his latest publication. He's also, of course, the current laureate for Irish fiction. And there I find in one of his essays these sentences. A novel by any of us is a set of lies, a set of organised premeditated fantasies. There is no such thing as an honest novel. <laughs> Explain that to me. Yeah, I mean, it, it means, for example, you could say in, in the beginning of a chapter, spring came early that year. And then you could look at that later and say, I don't like that. It could be spring came late that year. And no one would ever know that you had made that change. And you could even start decide it was autumn would be better for that chapter. And you say, autumn and they said, no, I don't like autumn. And, you know, in other words, you're constantly working towards getting the sentence right or getting something, but it's nothing to do with the truth. And please believe me if novelists say, I tell a hidden truth or an inner truth or the truth of a novel is much greater than the truth of a biography or a history book. It's just not true. No, no, we make things up. It's a simple matter. Children make things up. Novelists make things up. OK, and you make things up brilliantly in the novels. <laughs> Having come from a tradition as a brilliant journalist originally, I want to ask you about an essay from 2001 about a writer who I'll have to admit I never read. Okay, and I say his name will not be familiar to many of our listeners. Uh, The essay is called Issues of Truth and Invention, Francis Stewart. And it's fascinating because at a time when we are worried now about truthfulness and about the right of what people can say and telling lies about themselves and social media, I think an awful lot, and fascism, an awful lot of this is very relevant from what you wrote 20 years ago. So for the listener, tell us please who Francis Stewart was and what you knew of him. Francis was born in about 1900. He came, he was, he was from a northern unionist background. He came to Dublin quite early in about 1917 or 18. Very quickly married Isolt Gone, who was the daughter of Maud Gone, whom W.B. Yeats had also been in love with and wrote to a child dancing in the wind. He married her and he got involved in the civil war and um, on the Republican side, he was interned during that period. He became a friend of figures like Limo Flaherty. You know, they hung out together. They were very handsome, tall, debonair, bohemian men in Dublin. And um, he, was, he was really championed by W.B. Yeats as a young poet. He began to write novels. His marriage fell apart sometime in the 20s. Um, and there's a sense always with Francis Stewart that he was a damaged goods to start with, that, that, that he was, in a way, he certainly couldn't have been a faithful husband, but, but in a way, you know, he was a unionist who became a Republican, and he was um, a sort of spiritual figure who'd read Dostoevsky, but he was also you know, fiercely political at the, at the other side. And when it came to 1939... Francis, who'd never had a job in his life. I mean, he wrote a book called Racing for Profit and Pleasure in Ireland and Elsewhere. He was a gambler, you know. He, was a, um, he lived on his wits. He, he wrote a novel a year as well. But he decided, he was offered a job at the University of Berlin. I mean, can you imagine? He was he offered a job at the University of Berlin. And he decided he would go. He left his wife and his two children didn't dream of bringing them with him and he went and lived in Berlin and from Berlin in those war years he broadcast to Ireland. We keep hearing a lot of Lord Hoho Joyce who was a big well-known figure at the time maybe Stuart not as well-known in popular 
culture and popular history in Ireland. So how significant were his broadcasts and how much of a propagandist was he for the Nazi regime? He told someone I know that he never, ever met anyone who'd heard one of the broadcasts. And the broadcasts, when you read them, because they were published eventually, uh, they really are sentimental about Ireland. He wants a united Ireland. The, the anti-Semitism is veiled. It's about a conspiracy of international bankers. Now, well, we see, know what that is. And that's, as well, and that's yeah. what's become very prevalent in yeah. modern day, which is why I was really... Yeah, yeah in words. other words, it's coded stuff. But he does have one terrible broadcast about Hitler, saying that he decided to see what Hitler was like for himself, you know, which I, a lot of people couldn't afford to do at the time. He would have had them killed immediately. But, you know, the, the broadcasts are awful. They're, I tell you what they are. Anyone who's ever done hack work knows this. They must have been... He must have hated writing them hated doing them, but there they were afterwards. He, was, he made sure he was arrested at the end of the war by the French and not the English because the British might have put him on, a much, more seri- on much more serious charges. Um, and, but the French simply interned him, held him, eventually made his way to London with the woman he had been with in Germany in about 1949-50. He got to England and eventually made his way to Ireland where he lived in County Meath. And then he produced um, what people think of as his three war novels, all about guilt and all about... They're not political books. They're all about the sort of spiritual warmth and resonance that you can get from suffering. A bombed city was his great place where, you know, three, three people are holding each other. But he's, he, he, And this but, gets back to where we started. They weren't necessarily truthful. Well, These see, are his lies and yeah. inventions to cover yeah. for himself. You see, Blacklist Section H reads like an autobiography. He names everyone. Yates is called Yates. Maud Gunn is called Maud Gunn. Emily Moflarty. So it looks like he's using real names. It looks like an autobiography. He calls himself H. So um, his first name was Henry. And uh, it looks as though what he's talking about is some spiritual cleansing he wanted to go to the very place of evil, to be there when evil was bombed and to be in the bombed place and to be guilty, to feel part of the damned. I mean, this is all this. Look, I read it when I was 18. I thought it was great stuff. I loved all this. And I, I think it's very much a young man's book. But what, what we learned later, what I'm writing about here, and what, uh, what Brendan Barrington, who's now the editor of the Dublin Review, when he edited the collected um, broadcasts, he has a long introduction. And in the long introduction, he points out Francis Stewart was much more political than anyone thinks. Here's the evidence. He wrote this letter to the Irish Times. He, he wrote a pamphlet. He was, he was an IRA supporter much more than anyone thinks into the 30s. And he was anti-Semitic in all sorts of other ways, other coded ways. And so Blacklist Section H, you can see why it was written. It was written to present himself as innocent as well as guilty, as spiritual as well as political, in order in a way to change the focus of attention on, on, on his, move it away from his politics into some other area. But you came to know him. I did. And liked him? Oh, Francis was marvellous and his wife. And they, they were like... And no, yet you, you got to like somebody who then, when you read deeply, discovered was anti-Semitic and probably engaged in a degree of fantasy about the way the world should be. Yes, he lived out in Dundrum and he loved rabbits and he loved cats. And um, he always had something interesting to say about everything. And they were great readers and they were, you know, you know he, when I met him first, it was my first week in UCD, he came, to do a re, he came to do an event. And we all went to the bar and I was sitting beside a man who had known Maud Gone. Now, I was crazy about Yeats's poetry, the idea that, you know, touch the man who touched Maud Gone and 
it was funny, he just wasn't impressed by her. He said, you know, that she was always a bit of a nuisance as a mother-in-law. But I thought, I'm having an ordinary gossipy conversation with someone about Maud Gone. So it began there, but it also was that Francis was, he, he read every new novel was coming out. If any writer approached him, he was always approachable. He, he was really interesting man. But I didn't know a whole lot of this. It was one night late in a Chinese restaurant on Dame Street. Francis turned to me and said, um, Calm down. He had a funny accent. Calm, don't you think that democracy is just where the scum rise to the top? And I said, Francis, I don't think that. I really don't. And that was the only time where there was a head-to-head confrontation over the small matter of democracy. I, I was pretty amazed by that remark. But in your essay, you show that he did have these fascist tendencies in his writing. And that, again, is what at the moment we're hearing about freedom of speech and smashing away wokeness and the rest of it. And this is a theme that has run throughout the last, God knows how many years, hundreds of years, whatever. We're back in it now, except in a different milieu, perhaps, with social media rather than the radio broadcasts of the Second World War. Yeah, I I wrote that essay in New York in a place called the Cullman Centre, which was a place for people to come and write books. And one of the other guys there was writing a book about the Nuremberg Trials. And one of the other was Bernard Schlink, who was a judge in Westphalia. And he had written The Reader, which is about innocence and a trial of a Nazi in Germany. And so that was the, the discussions a lot were about, you know, what, who should be put on trial after the war, what guilt meant, what collaboration actually was. So I was in the middle of an argument with everybody else, mainly about Nazis, about um, contemporary Germany and about Jewishness. And uh, so, I, so this is my sort of contribution to that debate. And, you know, I don't come particularly well out of this because I really did hang out with him. And it, it wasn't as though... But we all hang out with people who might turn out, when we discover more about them, might have fascistic influences or tendencies. And the reason, again, why I'm bringing it up is we're seeing this happening in global politics at present, even in places like we would not expect it. And you try and call it out and you're told you're woke. And yet we have these issues perhaps even in the United States at present. Yeah, that, that, that I, I think the whole idea, though, is still that the Second World War seems different to everything else. The idea of being implicated in the Holocaust with, with Hitler and, and, his, and his fascists really was in certain ways so far away from the Ireland I was brought up in. And in other words, very close, like you were reading about it, but you never met anyone who was there. And so Francis was there. I want to also brush with the law and I'm fascinated as well because this is a 2007 uh, essay in which you write about our our judges and particularly the attitudes towards homosexuality which is remarkable when you see some of the things that they wrote and said in the 20th century given that we have now moved to marriage equality. Yeah, it was very strange. I I went down first... um, to the, to, to the four courts for this, I think it was 1979 when the Norris case was being held, was being heard in the High Court. And there really was a moment, you know, Mary Robinson was representing David Norris. And then the, the lawyers for the other side, there, there was a priest, uh, a liberal priest trying to suggest that the Bible wasn't that against homosexuality, that there were subtle ways of reading it and ambiguous ways of seeing it. And in, in the middle of all this, when he was talking about homosexuals, he said, we, I heard him, he said, we. And the barrister for the other side, for the state, for the Irish state, stop, just stop, father, stop, father. And it was all father. Father, did you say we? And I mean, a chill went through the court. I mean, it was as though he was admitting that he was gay. 
And I, I remember this vividly. He lost, in, David Norris lost in the High Court. He went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court gave their judgment in 83. It was a five-judge court. Three judges voted against Norris. Two judges voted for him, so he lost. There was a single judgment for the three judges, which was given by the Chief Justice, and it was a disgrace. By any standards, it was a disgrace. And Justice Henshey, who was one of the judges on the minority side, pointed out in his judgment that the Chief Justice of Ireland had used evidence that wasn't presented to the court. You know, was he put in his own evidence, untested. His own prejudices. Yes, yes, but also evidence, I mean, facts that weren't facts he'd put in about the homosexual spread disease and it was already a big problem in England. Like, who said it was a big problem in England? Where, where, does that, where did that come from? And he gave that as the, as the state judgment. And um, the judge who wasn't sitting on the court at the time was a member of the court was Mr. Justice Brian Walsh, who was a tremendous liberal in certain ways, was a wonderful person in other ways. But his judgment in the, in the Dudgeon case, which was the Northern Irish Norris case, which he gave in the European Court of Justice, was equally strange and prejudiced. They both believed, the Chief Justice and Mr. Justice Walsh, the two most senior judges in Ireland believed that homosexuality was contagious. In other words, that, that if you've got a taste of it, it would turn you for life. And you see, I'm homosexual. You sort of know that if only that were true, like it would be just so great because everybody would then be homosexual. But we, we learn homosexual. That's just, just so not true. You know, that so many people are emphatically not homosexual. So it was really weird to read these men who in so many areas were so learned going nuts once this small subject came to their attention. Even today, there's international controversy about one of the ambassadors for the World Cup in Qatar effectively saying that homosexuality is a form of mental illness. But those quotes that you have from our judges of the late 20th century are pretty much along those lines. Yes, even Mr Justice Henshey, who was for Norris, his judgment, his description of homosexuals is that that there were two types. You go, what are you talking about, two types? I mean, go down to the George on a Saturday night. They're, you know, every, like they're not two types. And where did, where did he get that two types thing from? So, so it, it was as though they lived in a world all of their own and they lived as though if a homosexual came into the room, suddenly the danger would be that everybody might themselves move over to that side of the sort of se- sexual, sexual border. Uh, and so just going through that stuff, I have to say I did this as a lecture and it really is great stuff because you can really make people laugh just by reading out the judgments. I mean, I, I did it in Trinity College two days before the referendum. And uh, honestly, it was great because it was, it was like having, a, it was like being Charlie Chaplin, you know, where you could read it out and they would just howl with laughter. Wondering, when was this? Well, it wasn't that long ago. Would you ever fear, though, that we could end up seeing a reversal of the hold that liberal Ireland has established in recent years of being tolerant and forgiving and being accepting of the fact that everybody should be as they are? When you see what, for example, is going on in the United States in America, when you see the rollback on various uh, rights that have been given to people, that in time we shouldn't take this for granted, that we could have this re-emerge in Ireland. Yeah, I mean, I think the United States is very dangerous now because the Supreme Court, people like Amy Comey Barrett, have have absolutely no interest at all in gay rights. And the, the, the other problem is the Vatican. You know, if you look at, for example, poor old Pope Benedict, who's still alive, he said under John Paul II, when he was Ratzinger, that being gay itself was a moral disorder. Not that homosexual acts were a moral disorder, but the 
but the business of being gay. So in other words, I, I read that and thought, so if you stayed at home on a Saturday night and if you watched reruns of Bernadette of Lourdes, but you were gay, it was a mor- you were still a moral disorder. Now that idea of being a moral disorder and that coming from the Vatican, people are attacking this poor priest in Listowel for, for just saying milder things than that. This was said by Ratzinger, who then was elected Pope by all the cardinals. He said it again, by the way, when he was made Pope. A moral disorder, homosexuality itself. It's an essentialist idea that in Germany in 1939 caused a lot of trouble for anyone who was gay, who was Jewish, or who was a gypsy. That, you know, that there, being a gypsy was a moral disorder. Well, I, I took enormous exception to this at the time. In America now, there, there's been the very strange thing we didn't expect, which is a Catholic takeover of the Supreme Court. It's not a right-wing takeover, it's a Catholic takeover. But they're, they're Catholics in a way that we're not. You know, we just don't have, people don't, here don't have the appetite. I mean, the, I mean the, the bishops don't have the appetite for that sort of ugly statement. But and could it ever I, I, resurface, do you oh, think? All you would need is one big beast bishop to arrive and start going around the country mouthing it. But it's fun. It wouldn't be. People, don't, people here at the moment, just partly because women don't like their brothers or their lesbian sisters being insulted in public by anyone. You know, it's a family thing. And that's what we learned during the referendum, that the word family really matters in Ireland. And if you have a gay son, gay brother or lesbian sister, you just don't want them discriminated against. So it's not just an angry minority group. It's every family insisting on this. So I, I just don't feel that at the moment in Ireland, I, I mean, I'm talking about not just an atmosphere that's here now, but a sort of manner, a sort of way of being mannerly that are a sort of way that families matter and they don't want one member of the family excluded or discriminated against or insulted. So, you know, yeah, those rights were hard won in Ireland, but I don't see the same dangers I do in America. Good. I want to ask you about the opening <laughs> chapter of the book and it's a stunning essay about living with cancer. And you really had it tough, didn't you? Yeah, I think that um, testicular cancer is particular because they, they found a way of treating it early on and they didn't change it because it worked. But it's a primitive, I think, form of chemo that hasn't been, for very good reasons. I mean, how, how could, who, who would you test a new version on? So, yeah, I was, um, I think if you've been chemo, you know, if you've been through chemo, you know about it, which is the sort of anguish that you really can't explain to somebody. You, like, have, having read this book, I really hope, I mean, that I never have to experience chemotherapy because it sounded like you had the most horrific experience. Yeah, I mean, you can't eat, you can't drink, you can't sleep. You really can't read and you can't listen to music. Sounds so, like you so can't really about, think like that really, well either. Yeah, but there was really nothing to complain about because everyone was being so nice to you. I mean, the oncologists, the oncology nurses, the whole system was designed to be nice to you. Your friends were nice to you, your lovers, your friends, everyone was just, everyone just super, you was just like, it was like being treated like, you know, you were, you were, you were, you were precious. And, uh, you know, your, your eyebrows eventually fell off and... I promised, I honestly did, I promised I wouldn't, wasn't going to write a, one of those battle against cancer pieces. I hate the word battle against cancer. They're doing more battle in the kitchen making your dinner than you are. You're just lying there like a fool. And everyone else is working, except you. And uh, I promised I wouldn't write one of those, I have learned the value of life. You know, <laughs> finally, I know, you know, I, when the dawn comes, I'm there, you know, happy. All that's rubbish. I didn't, I, it didn't change anything. It was just terrible six months. And then it was over. 
and I promised I wouldn't write about it. I promised for one once I'm not going to write about something. And then I was walking along the street and a sentence came into my head. And the sentence is the first sentence there. It is, it all started with my balls. And once, <laughs> once I thought of that, I thought, what? I mean, that's true. And some of it was, some of it was funny. I mean, sometimes you just lay in bed laughing. No, no, and I did, I did laugh mm. at some of the stuff you said, but I was struck by a horrific loss six months for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what's great is when it's over, you just get on. You just say, you know, I, you, no matter what question you ask them, they have a lovely way of deflecting you. I was asked the nurse, like, do you have any idea like, when my eyebrows might come back? Because I'm bald, so I don't have that much hair anyway. And she would always say, oh, well, it depends on the person. You know, and, uh, but you, um, I promised I wasn't going to write. Well, anyway, I did write it. I'm sorry. I mean, I really should put a note. At the, you know, it's but, a terrific but start But the thing book. is, you do come out the other, if you're lucky enough to come out the other side, we have a wonderful way of putting those things out of our minds and just they're in the past. You know, it, that, that it doesn't, it isn't as though I spend my life dwelling on all that stuff. I'm told we're out of time. I'd <laughs> love to talk to you about loads more in this terrific collection of essays. It's called A Guest at the Feast. Colm Tobin, thank you so thank much. You, thank you very much. Thank you. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.